This morning we're starting a new series called um, I Pledge Allegiance, which is, you know, just a good scandalous sermon series title for you, right? Um, I'm actually not going to say a whole lot about what the series is about um, because today's the first week, which will act as kind of an introduction and kind of set the stage for the next few weeks. So, uh, I pledge allegiance. Um, so as we get started this morning, um, let's pause for a word of prayer and uh, we'll uh, jump in after that. Loving God, we are uh, grateful um, for this chance to, to gather together. <laughs> Today may be a little stranger than uh, in normal ways, but uh, we're grateful, God, um, for the community that we call First Mennonite. We're grateful for uh, the gift of technology that uh, connects us and unites us um, during this, this strange season. Uh, God, as we uh, gather together and as we open up the scriptures, we acknowledge that your spirit is working among us uh, in the sanctuary and in our homes. And uh, God, we open ourselves up to your spirit. Uh, God, would your spirit lead us and guide us and shape us and form us this morning. And ultimately, may we look more and more like Jesus. We pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So you might have noticed that there is some sort of rather significant event taking place uh, in just a couple days, right? Uh, if for whatever reason you've been living under a rock, uh, we're talking about a presidential election on Tuesday. And I recognize that um, there would be some within our congregation who have experienced and witnessed a few more presidential elections than I have. Um, but there's something that feels rather significant about this one. Um, there's something that feels a bit weighty, uh, feels a bit heavy with this election. And um, as I've tried to, to read the news and listen to the news and have conversations with people, um, both leaning left and leaning right, um, I've gathered the same sort of sentiment. Uh, that there's something rather significant, there's a heaviness, there's a a weightiness uh, to this particular political moment that we find ourselves in. Uh, I recently uh, heard of an experiment that was done where uh, an interviewer read uh, a list of what should be like seemingly uh, emotionally neutral words to a crowd of people. And as the interviewer read uh, this list of words, they asked that, that the crowd pay attention to what sort of emotions rise up as the words are being read. And so the interviewer, again, like emotion, seemingly emotionally neutral words, began to read a, a list of words or phrases like um, the United States of America, uh, politics, um, president, uh, Republican, Democrat, uh, conservative, liberal, Donald Trump, Joe Biden. And they said that after they read this word and began to uh, take a toll of those that were listening, um, they said that there was like this dominant theme throughout all of the emotions that arose to the surface. There were feelings of nervousness, there was feelings of anxiety, and there was feelings of just being overwhelmed by this particular political moment that we find ourselves in. Now, I'll be honest, like if I'm not in like uh, top form, if I'm not in the best headspace, uh, I too can slip into these feelings of nervousness and anxiety and over feeling overwhelmed. And I would assume that I'm not alone in this because I've had enough conversations with a number of you and I've seen enough of our social media feeds to know that um, there's a good bit of nervousness and anxiety and feelings of overwhelmed around all of this. 
And it just kind of begs the question of like, is this the best that we got? <laughs> like, is this the best that we've got? And I don't mean like, are, are these the, the two best candidates that we've got? I mean like the entire system as a whole, is this the best that we've got? Like, is, is the best that we've got this, like, four-year pattern of hitching our wagon to one political leader, one political party, only to re-hitch that wagon four years later? Is this the best that we've got? And, like, think about the emotional political turmoil that comes with this four-year cycle. Like, is this the best that we've got? Is this the best that we've got? Or is there something better? Is there something more beautiful? Is there something more true? Is there something more real? Is this the best that we've got or is there something better? Now fortunately, I think the answer to that question is yes. I think there is something better. I think there is something more beautiful. I think there is something more true and more real. And to help us sort through that this morning, uh, I want to spend some time uh, in Matthew chapter 4, looking at the way that um, um, our author Matthew describes some of the early patterns and movements uh, within Jesus' public ministry. So we should note that as we get into Matthew chapter 4, uh, this details, again, what we might call like the beginning of Jesus' public ministry. So up to this point in Matthew, we've been told a lot about Jesus, but we actually haven't heard much from Jesus. Up to this point, the stage has been set for Jesus, but as we get into Matthew chapter 4, we see Jesus stepping onto the stage and stepping into center stage. Up to this point, he's been kind of in the shadows, but now he's stepping into the spotlight. And it's interesting, as Matthew begins to describe the early movements and patterns of Jesus' public ministry, he tells us in verse 23, Jesus went throughout Galilee, a particularly like Jewish region, teaching in their synagogues, and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom. Again, this is describing like uh, some of the early patterns and movements of Jesus's ministry. And notice um, uh, who Jesus's primary audience is here. Notice who are the people that Jesus is talking to. Notice who are the people that are listening to Jesus as he begins his public ministry. Well, it would be primarily, if not exclusively, um, Jewish folk. But not just Jewish folk, but like Jewish folks in uh, first century Roman occupation. Now, the, the Roman Empire, like we have to recognize, like wasn't just like the dominant world power of the day. It wasn't just the superpower of the day, but it was like the greatest world superpower that the world had ever seen up to this point. Like they were doing things that nobody thought were humanly possible. And their, uh, their rule, their, um, their reign, was so incredibly dominant. Now, a few years before uh, Jesus, uh, Rome had claimed occupation of the Jewish people, which meant that the, the Jews who found themselves in their homeland, well, it didn't really feel like their homeland anymore, right? Like they were home, they were in this land where they once had autonomy, they were in this land that God had given to them, and yet it didn't really belong to them anymore. We might think of it as the difference between like leasing a home and owning a home. Uh, so if you've ever talked to somebody who's leasing or renting a home, you may uh, have talked to them and said, well, what do you think of your new place? Is there anything that you'd like to, to do to it? And they may say, yeah, you know, I'd really love to like redo the floors. Um, and you say, well, are you planning on doing that? And they're like, I don't know, I need to talk to my landlord. Why? Because they don't own the home. Like, 
somebody else is calling the shots, right? But if you talk to somebody who just recently purchased a home, uh, you may ask them the same sort of question and they may have the same sort of answer and say, yeah, we're actually saving up to do it next year. Why? Because they own the home and they get to call the shots. But the unique sort of thing for the Jewish people here is that they own their home. It's just that this big bad superpower claimed eminent domain and now started dictating the rules and calling the shots so that they could no longer decide how they wanted to live and function within what was once their home. Now, uh, unfortunately for the first century Jewish people, um, this was like a far too familiar pattern for them and their history. Because dating all the way back to like 6th century BCE, we have this moment where the Jewish people come under their first sort of occupation, if you will. Um, and from that point on, um, the Jewish people became, uh, became like this sort of like political pawn between uh, the latest and greatest world superpower to the next latest and greatest world superpower. Just being tossed to and fro, back and forth, back and forth. And so as Jesus comes and is talking to uh, this group of first century Jewish folk, recognize like we're talking to people who are frustrated. <laughs> we're talking to people who are bitter. We're talking to people who are upset, who are probably feeling a little disoriented. And as they're thinking about the empire of Rome, as they're thinking about kingdoms, they're probably feeling a bit nervous, <laughs> a bit anxious, and a bit overwhelmed. And so Jesus comes to these people who are probably asking this question of, is this the best that we've got? And he comes to them with a message of a kingdom. Now let's pause for a moment. What do we mean when we say the word kingdom? Well, we can mean a few things. We can talk about a territory. We can talk about a land. Um, we can talk about like a region. But we can also talk about something that's a bit more like a, a, a place a people, a culture, an ethos, a system, a way of being, something that's kind of like encapsulates the totality of a life, right? And you may be thinking like, well, isn't that what Rome was? Yes, that's exactly what Rome was. And it's at this point that we have to recognize like the incredibly political nature of Jesus's message. Now, you may be thinking like, uh, I have spent the last like four or five years in what feels like a seemingly endless political cycle. Like, politics is a bad word at this point for most of us, right? How in the world was Jesus dabbling in this bad thing? Well, recognize like politics in and of themselves aren't bad. Like there's nothing inherently wrong with politics. Um, uh, the English word politics comes from a, a Greek word that means something along the lines of like the affairs of the city. So like how are, how are we conducting business as a city? So did anybody turn on a faucet this morning and get water out of it? Yeah, that's politics at work. That's a good thing, right? Um, but when we talk about politics, we can also think about it as like uh, the organizing principle of our shared life together. Like how are we living our life together? How are we um, figuring out who gets what and how things are conducted? See, politics in and of themselves aren't bad. They're not, they aren't inherently bad, but politics can turn bad when the organizing principle behind them is bad. And this is exactly what we see with Rome. Because we see that Rome only cared about those that were at the very, 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 very top. And Rome was willing to conquer and dominate anybody who got in their way at the expense of um, those at the very bottom who were funding this, uh, uh, this beast of this war machine. And it was breaking the backs of the people. And so you have all of this taking place. 
And this is Jesus' message to these people who have had their backs broken, who are feeling exhausted by the system, who are feeling burned out by the empire, to people who are feeling nervous and anxious and overwhelmed, to people who are asking the question of, is this the best that we've got? And Jesus comes with this message of a new kingdom. Now, notice in particular how Matthew describes this news of this new kingdom. Because Matthew calls this news of a new kingdom good news, or, as some translations put it, the gospel. Now, if you grew up in a, a particularly like Christian uh, culture, you're probably well aware of the gospel. Um, but the gospel actually didn't have its origins in uh, the Christian world. But rather, as you might guess at this point, gospel was a word that was entrenched in politics. Um, gospel was a proclamation, a political proclamation of the empire. So, for example, with Rome, if they conquered a new territory, there would be a gospel message that was sent to that territory that said, hey, good news, uh, you belong to Rome. Welcome to all the benefits of that. Namely, like, you're not our enemy anymore. <laughs> or if there was a new king or Caesar or leader and... Um, uh, a gospel message would go out to the people of his constituency, and it would say, hey, good news, uh, you have a new king, a new leader, a new Caesar. With this gospel message always came a promise of peace and prosperity. Um, now recognize, gospel messages didn't stop in the first century. <laughs> because even in our own political realm, we continue to have gospel messages. For the last four or five years, we've heard with President Trump's campaign this gospel of making America great again. Um, this is the promise of peace and prosperity if we elect this person, that uh, America will return to a once previous greatness. But we hear this on the other side, too, with Vice President Biden's campaign, too, right? Um, we might hear things like restoring the soul of America or uniting our nation. It's this, this promise of peace and prosperity that, that we'll be united in a way that we haven't before if we elect this person. But notice that Jesus is taking all of this political language and subverting it and co-opting it for his own purposes here. And he says, listen, I come bringing good news and it has nothing to do with the empire of Rome and it has nothing to do with the, any sort of kingdom of this world, but I come bringing good news. I come bringing gospel of something new. Now pay attention to this because for Jesus, the news of the kingdom is the good news. The news of the kingdom is the good news. The news of the kingdom is the gospel. For those of us that grew up in a, a particular like, Christian culture, we might hear the word gospel and think of like, some abstract idea of the destiny of our souls when we die. But that actually misses what Jesus is talking about. The news of the kingdom for Jesus is the good news. And as Jesus is coming to people who are burned out by the system, um, who have been uh, kicked to the curb by the system, who are feeling anxious and nervous and overwhelmed by the system, this most certainly would have been received as good news. And I think that this is why we see the people following Jesus that we do. The poor, the marginalized, the widow, the orphan, uh, the stranger, those who have been neglected and maybe even worse, burned by the system and abandoned by the system are following Jesus who is offering a new sort of system. And for those of us in 2020, just a couple days before a presidential election, 
those of us who are feeling a bit uh, uh, burned by the system and exhausted by the empire, <laughs> those of us that are feeling nervous and anxious and overwhelmed and asking this question of, is there something better? Jesus has good news for us. And that is that there is a new kingdom. And Jesus invites us into this kingdom. And Jesus, if I can use even more scandalous language, invites us to pledge our allegiance to this kingdom, even over and against any other kingdom that we may find ourselves in. Now, for those uh, who are feeling nervous and anxious and overwhelmed by um, the kingdom, uh, this news of a new kingdom certainly would, would feel like good news. But I think it also begs the question of, like, what is this kingdom like? <laughs> um, is this kingdom just more of, of the same? Is it just Rome 2.0? Is it just the United States of America 2.0? Or is there something different about it? And I think that this is probably a question that people were asking in the first century because um, would-be revolutionaries, and, like, notice that Jesus is a revolutionary, right? They didn't just crucify nice, kind people. Um, they crucified threats to the empire. Uh, would-be revolutionaries were a dime a dozen. Um, there was always somebody who was leading some sort of like insurrection. And, um, but there always had a familiar pattern. Um, these would-be uh, revolutionaries always had violent attempts with violent means that always ended with, with violent ends. And so as people are hearing of this new kingdom, they're, they're wondering, like, are we just hitching our wagon only to end in bloodshed um, in the near future? Is Jesus' kingdom just more of the same? And this is where I think there's, like, profound beauty in the Gospel of Matthew. Because after Matthew tells us of this early movement and pattern of Jesus' public ministry, of proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God, we enter into Matthew 5, 6, and 7, which you may better know as the Sermon on the Mount. <laughs> and I think the Sermon on the Mount can act as a sort of like constitution of the kingdom of God, if you will. Because what we find in here are like the fundamental principles of what the kingdom of God is like. We find the fundamental principles of what the kingdom of God is like, what it means to be part of this kingdom, and um, what it means to, to have pledged our allegiance to this kingdom, and what we're trying to become as we enter into this kingdom. And so um, what we see as we dive into the Sermon on the Mount is that, no, it's not just more of the same. And it seems as though um, Jesus recognizes that, like, if you're wanting to move past the old system into a new system, the new system has to have a power and an energy that's different than the old. Um, if it's going to have any sort of substantive difference, it has to have a different power and energy. And as we look at the kingdoms of Rome, as we look at the kingdoms of America, as we look at all of the major dominant empires of the world, we see that their power and energy lies in things like violence and lies and manipulation and sacrificing certain groups of people. But as we dive into the Sermon on the Mount, what we see as the power and energy of the kingdom of God are things like love and peace and forgiveness and not sacrificing other people, but self-sacrifice for the sake of others. And so notice the wisdom of Jesus. People are following him, hearing of this new kingdom, asking this question of what is this kingdom like? And we're told at the beginning of Matthew 5, Jesus heads up a mountain. 
He sits down with his disciples in front of him, the crowds behind him, and he probably is aware of this question of what is this kingdom like. He says, you want to know what this kingdom's like? Within this kingdom, blessed are the poor in spirit. Within this kingdom, blessed are those who mourn. Within this kingdom, blessed are the meek. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness and justice, for things to be set right. Within this kingdom, blessed are the merciful. Within this kingdom, blessed are the pure in heart. Within this kingdom, blessed are the peacemakers. Within this kingdom, blessed are those who are persecuted for uh, righteousness and justice, for their pursuits of setting the world right. You want to know what this kingdom's like? It's completely different than any other kingdom you've seen. And the news of this kingdom is good news for those who have been burned, overwhelmed, exhausted, anxious, and nervous by any other kingdom of this world. Um, so uh, that's where we're headed in the next few weeks. Um, and uh, I just want to say, like, the goal of this series, um, first off, it's to provide a little bit of sanity over the next um, few weeks because... Who knows what things are going to be like? <laughs> and uh, I hope that it can provide a little bit of hope, a little bit of grounding, a little bit of sanity in the midst of whatever lies ahead. But more than that, uh, I hope that as we dive into this, um, this series, that it can stretch our political imaginations a bit. Um, a few months ago, I, I had this conviction of like, if I'm spending more time thinking about, talking about, and reading about American partisan politics rather than the Sermon on the Mount, I have failed to comprehend the beauty of the kingdom of God. And so um, I want us to spend some time talking about the kingdom of God over the next few weeks and what it means to, to be part of it. Now, um, lastly, like this doesn't mean that like the politics that we find ourselves in here don't matter. I'm not saying like we shouldn't care, we shouldn't be involved, we shouldn't vote. Um, this isn't a call to be apolitical in any sort of way. Um, but it is a call to remember that there is something more beautiful, something better, something more true, something more real, called the kingdom of God. And Jesus invites us into that. And Jesus invites us to pledge our allegiance to that. Um, and I think for those of us feeling nervous, anxious, overwhelmed, the news of the kingdom really is good news for us. Um, so as we uh, close our sermon time today, uh, I have a call and response prayer that I want to lead us in. Um, and it comes from the book, Jesus for President. Um, if you've never read Jesus for President, tis the season, right? So uh, I would encourage that. And uh, if you'd like to borrow a copy, I have one. I'd be happy to, to uh, let you use. Um, so it's going to be on the screen here for um, those of us on Zoom. Uh, and it should be in your bulletin for those in the sanctuary. Um, it's a, a call and response, and it should be... Uh, uh, Pretty easy uh, to pick up the pattern here soon. All right, <clears throat> let's pray. Today we pledge our ultimate allegiance to the kingdom of God. We pledge our allegiance to peace that is not like Rome's. We pledge our allegiance to the gospel of enemy love. We pledge our allegiance. To the kingdom of the poor and broken, we pledge our allegiance. To a king who loves his enemies so much he died for them, we pledge our allegiance. To the least of these with whom Christ dwells, we pledge our allegiance. 
to the transnational church that transcends the artificial borders of nations, we pledge our allegiance. To the refugee of Nazareth, we pledge our allegiance. To the homeless rabbi who had no place to lay his head, we pledge our allegiance. To the cross rather than the sword, we pledge our allegiance. To the banner of love above any flag, we pledge our allegiance. To the one who rules with a towel rather than an iron fist, we pledge our allegiance. To the one who rides a donkey rather than a war horse, we pledge our allegiance. To the revolution that sets both oppressed and oppressors free, we pledge our allegiance. To the way that leads to life, we pledge our allegiance. To the slaughtered lamb, we pledge our allegiance. And together we proclaim his praises from the margins of the empire to the centers of wealth and power. Long live the slaughtered lamb. Long live the slaughtered lamb. Long live the slaughtered lamb. Amen.